On this episode of the Blue Jacketeer podcast, we'll be covering chapter 19 of the Corin Manual. Welcome to the Blue Jacketeer podcast, where we help you prepare for the Navy-wide advancement exam by covering study material created by highly qualified sailors. Learn more about what we have to offer at www.bluejacketeer.com. Welcome back to the bluejacketeer.com podcast for hospital corpsmen. I'm Taylor Larson, and I'll be walking you through this chapter of the Corman Manual. Here at Blue Jacketeer, we aim to bring you the tools you need to be successful on the Navy-wide advancement exam. On this episode, we will continue with the Hospital Corman Manual, covering Chapter 19. Be sure to pay attention, because on the next episode, you'll be quizzed on what you learned today. Without further delay, let's get started. Sit back, relax, and listen up. This is Chapter 19 of the Hospital Corman Manual, Clinical Laboratory. This chapter is one of the most difficult topics to grasp, but once you do, the knowledge within is incredibly rewarding, even more so because it's historically one of the largest parts of the exam. Knowing what kind of lab tests to perform on certain patients, as well as the actual meaning of the results, is incredibly valuable when deciding what kind of treatments to proceed with. Outside of practical experience on the topic, one of the best things to do if you're looking for information that will supplement this podcast and the manual is to simply Google whatever it is you're trying to find information on, especially if you're a visual learner. For instance, if listening to or reading what the differences are between different types of bacteria isn't enough, take a look at the image results when you Google it. There are so many ways to take on this information for the test, so make sure you fully investigate each avenue to get the best chance as you go towards the exam. First, we'll get the very important initial fundamentals out of the way. The SF545 is the laboratory report display. This is the one form that has outlasted CHCS and Alta printed copies of laboratory reports, which are filed on top of, or attached to, the SF-545. If you're putting pen to paper to request a laboratory service, make sure you use blue or blue-black ink. Use a separate form for each patient because you'll also have to include all of their PII on this form. Ethics is a big deal when discussing laboratory results. An easy example is HIV results. If you're familiar with HIV results in CHCS and Alta, you know that only the ordering provider is able to see that result. We have many resources that guide our ethics, including Chapter 16 of the ManMed, the Joint Commission MedIG, and the Department of Health and Human Services. The general reference across any healthcare facility, though, is of course HIPAA. There are two main methods of getting a blood specimen from a patient, capillary and venipuncture. There's quite a bit to go into for each, so let's start with good infection control practices. Universal bloodborne precautions from OSHA is the idea that all human blood, and some other bodily fluids, should be treated as if they are known to be infectious for HIV, HBV, and other nasty bloodborne pathogens, and so are potentially infectious. Basically, treat any sample as if it could infect you with a potentially fatal disease. The procedure for collecting a capillary finger sample is fairly simple, so I'll include some best practices along with necessary steps. Explaining the procedure to the patient should be the first step of any encounter, after washing your hands. 
Decide which finger you'll get the sample from and try to stick either the middle or ring finger unless both sets are unavailable. It's best to warm the site to promote good blood flow and it reduces the tendency to squeeze the site. Clean the fingertip with an alcohol pad or iodine solution and let it dry. Now, decide where on the actual finger you're going to poke. Always puncture away from the midline of the finger or the heel to keep from hitting the bone. Then take a lancet and make a quick stab no greater than two millimeters deep on the side of the finger. When you get the first drop of blood, wipe it away with some gauze to keep the specimen from getting contaminated by tissue fluid. Then collect the blood in the container with a scooping method. Venipunctures are a little more advanced than the standard capillary stick. It requires a good deal more of finesse and confidence from the corpsman, which can really only come with practice. If you're not confident in your venipuncture technique, ask someone for guidance and take every opportunity to practice that you can. After explaining to the patient what you're about to do, go ahead and apply the tourniquet three to four inches above where you're intending to stick them. There should be little or no flexion at the elbow now. Find where you're going to stick them by palpation or feeling the arm. It's easy to get into a bad practice of only sticking veins that you can see, so make sure you can recognize the spongy feel of a vein that is prime for drawing from. Clean the site and let it dry. With your free hand, put your thumb an inch or two below and to the side of the vein, and pull the skin towards your wrist with your thumb. This should keep the vein from rolling, it's known as anchoring. Then, with the bevel up, insert the needle into the vein at a 15 to 30 degree angle from the skin. Push the vacutainer barrel into the holder, and watch for blood to come into the tube. Once the blood starts flowing, take the tourniquet off. If the patient is a difficult stick and you have multiple vials to fill, you can leave the tourniquet on until you're done, but a tourniquet should not be on the patient for more than a minute without a break. Take the final, or only, tube out, place some gauze over the puncture site, and remove the needle quickly. Best practice here is to not apply pressure on the gauze and the site until after the needle has been removed. This is really painful for the patient and can leave them with a nasty bruise to remember you by. Page 19 Tech 8 in your manual has a few images of correct and incorrect phlebotomy techniques. It's likely that you'll fill multiple vacutainer tubes from a single site, so it's important to know what the different colored tubes are for. They can differ from one command to another, but lavender tops are usually for complete blood counts, and red tops are typically used for blood chemistry tests. There's a handy chart on page 19, tech 10 of common tube top colors and their corresponding tests. So, since we're covering the whole spectrum of laboratory here, now that we have our imaginary sample, we need to actually look at it. For this, we use a microscope. These are intricate, expensive machines that have all kinds of parts that we should know. And there's a reference diagram on page 19, tech 11 to help us out. First, the arm is what supports the magnification and focusing systems. This is what we use to carry the microscope. The stage is where the specimen is placed for examination, and there's a hole on this bit where the light can pass through from the condenser. The mechanical stage is also known as the movable stage, because this is how we move the specimen around the stage to view the sample. The easiest part, other than the arm, is the base, which is just the bottom.
the chapter gets into the intricacies of the lighting and magnification system, but I want to get into the nitty-gritty of what the test focuses on, and I'm sure you do as well. The ocular lens is the first component to figuring out what magnification to use on a specimen. Most ocular lenses will have a magnification power of 10 times. Then we have the objective lens. These are low power at 10 times, high power at 40 times, and oil immersion at 100 times. So, if you're using the 10 times ocular lens and the 40 times objective lens, you'll get a total magnification of 400 times. Now that we can actually see our specimen, let's discuss what the different tests actually are. A complete blood count, or CBC, consists of five tests. A total red blood cell count, hemoglobin determination, hematocrit, total white blood cell count, and white blood cell differential count. The red blood cell count can be used to diagnose a whole bunch of diseases. If the red cell count drops below the norm, it could be indicative of anemia. A higher than normal count can point towards dehydration. For reference, red blood cells are also called erythrocytes. The hemoglobin determination measures the concentration of hemoglobin within the red blood cells. Hemoglobin is used by the blood to deliver and release oxygen to tissues and take carbon dioxide from them. The normal hemoglobin levels per 100 milliliters of blood are 12 to 16 for females and 14 to 18 for males. Hematocrit is a fancy way to say what the percentage of whole blood is made up of red blood cells. Normal hematocrit levels are 37 to 47% for females and 42 to 52% for males. Total white blood cells, or leukocytes, are given in laboratory levels in numbers in a different way because they're counted per cubic millimeter of blood. Normal white blood cell values range from 4,800 to 10,800 per cubic milliliter. You'll see this displayed on lab results as 4.8 to 10.8, implying an automatic calculation of 10 to the 6th power per milliliter. When the white blood cell count is above the normal values, it's referred to as leukocytosis. In really severe conditions, a white blood cell value can be over 50,000 per cubic millimeter. There are some things that can automatically cause leukocytosis, like pregnancy, appendicitis, emotional stress, anxiety, and strenuous exercise. When the white blood cell count is lower than normal, it's called leukopenia and can be caused by advanced bacterial infections, viral infections, anaphylactic shock, or radiation. The white blood cell differential count in a CBC gives us the number of different types of white blood cells in the blood. There are five total types, being neutrophils, eosinophils, basophils, lymphocytes, and monocytes. Neutrophils are the largest percentage of leukocytes, white blood cells, in a normal sample, and are important because they ingest invading bacteria. Eosinophils will destroy parasites and respond to allergic reactions. A rise in basophils could mean there's an inflammatory disorder with the patient, and it could also indicate certain leukemias. Lymphocytes deal with immune responses and provide the body with defense against viral infections. Our last type of white blood cell is the monocyte, which is the largest in size, 
and controls microbial and fungal infections, and removes damaged cells from the body. While looking at and counting blood cells is a large part of the laboratory process, another important process is the identification and classification of bacteria. Since there are thousands of types of bacteria, don't worry, this episode won't be that long, we classify them according to their disease-producing ability, growth requirements, morphologic characteristics, the toxins they produce, and their Gram-stain reaction. Now, I know all of that sounds like a complicated mess, but stick with me, and we'll work through this together. Me, because I have to in order to make this podcast, and you, because you want to do better on your test. When bacteria is sorted according to their disease-producing ability, it just means we organize them between those that can cause diseases and those that are harmless. That is to say, pathogenic or non-pathogenic, respectively. Different bacteria also have different growth requirements. There are four requirements, though, that we can observe in all bacteria. These are temperature, oxygen, nutrition, and moisture. Temperature and oxygen are the two of these four that the test really likes to hit on. Temperature requirements are divided into three categories, cold, normal, and hot. Psychrophilic bacteria reproduce at low temperatures, around 4 degrees Celsius. Mesophilic reproduce at body temperature, 35 degrees Celsius. And thermophilic reproduce at a higher temperature, around 42 degrees Celsius. Now, there are two different types of oxygen classifications for bacteria. These are aerobes, which need oxygen, and anaerobes, which don't use oxygen. Easy enough. Now, the morphologic characteristics just mean how they're structured. There are cocus, plural cocci, which are spherical and appear singly, or in pairs, chains, clusters, or packets. I don't know why the manual doesn't just say groups. I digress. We also have bacillus, or bacilli bacteria, which are shaped like rods, which can appear singly or in chains, or in groups that look like railroad tracks or schools of fish. Next, we have spiroquets, or spirilla, which are helical, spiral, corkscrew-looking bacteria, which only appear singly. The test rarely touches on toxins, but I can make this characteristic really quick. Bacteria generally produce toxins in two ways. The toxins can be held in the cell wall and get released when the cell is destroyed. These are called endotoxins. The opposite are called exotoxins, which are found outside of the cell wall and are highly poisonous. Alright, next we have the ever-feared Gram-Stain Reaction section. So, all this is referring to is a smear stain on your specimen. After the stain is applied, there's a decolorization process that strips the unused stain from the specimen. If the test is positive, the cell wall will still have a violet stain. If the test is negative, the cell will be pink. This means that gram-positive cells are violet and gram-negative cells are pink. With this, we can combine the gram-stain reaction and the morphologic characteristics, for instance, gram-positive cocci, of the bacteria to choose the correct antibiotic. There's a great table on page 19, tack 20 of your Corman manual that breaks down some common bacteria and what their different gram-stain reactions can indicate. There's a bit more of lab that we still have to cover, so let's move on to serology. 
The two primary tests for this are the Rapid Plasma Reagent Card Test and the Monospot Test. The RPR test is an easy test to perform to determine a syphilis infection in a patient. For testing purposes, you need to know that reactive specimens appear as black clumps against a white background. Non-reactive specimens will have an even light gray color. For the RPR test, the results are not reported as either positive or negative, but reactive or non-reactive. The monospot test is a very useful test to determine mononucleosis because the disease imitates so many other diseases that it is difficult to detect otherwise. It's a two-minute disposable test that detects if a sample of serum, plasma, or whole blood has any infectious mononucleosis antibodies. Alright, the last part of lab that we'll discuss is urine testing. This is a section that has a bunch of questions in the historical question bank, so I'll breeze through what you need to know and we'll wrap this up. There are three ways to collect urine specimens. Random, first morning, and 24 hour. You'll notice that quote unquote drug was not one of those ways. The random urine specimen is the most commonly received specimen. The first morning specimen is the ideal screening test because it's concentrated and more likely to show abnormalities, if there are any. The 24-hour specimen just measures the exact output of urine over a 24-hour period. It's a little involved, though, as you'll make the patient void early in the morning and record the time. This urine will be discarded. All urine over the next 24 hours will be collected, and the patient will void once more at 0800 the next day, ending the test. The normal urine volume for adults ranges from 600 to 2000 milliliters, but the average is 1500. Color is very important when discussing urine. Normal color will range from straw to amber, but can also be colorless. If there's any red color, that means blood. Yellow or brown that turns green with a yellow foam when shaken indicates bile in the urine. An olive green to brown black color is caused by phenols, and dark orange is caused by pyridium, a topical analgesic used to treat UTIs. This concludes our lesson for chapter 19 of the Hospital Coronary Manual. I hope that you were able to not only learn something, but also apply some of the information in this chapter to your daily duties. Remember, at Blue Jackets here, we bring you the very best in advancement exam preparation. Don't forget to listen to the audio quiz for this lesson, and get your best studying done with our expert study tools at www.bluejacketeer.com. Also, make sure to look for our next lesson, where we'll be covering Chapter 20 of the Hospital Corman Manual. As always, I'm Taylor Larson, reminding you to stay Navy and always keep working for that next rank. Thank you.